Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 176th episode of the Nauticast titled Fear and Desire, an analysis of a Storm of Swords John 3, in which Jon Snow explores a complex cave system. It's so unique and interesting and complex. I don't know if you can even find his way out of there. Jon Snow's heroic quest to locate the clit. We're all we're all very proud of him for pulling it off. Everyone clap. <laughs> I'm down. He did I'm it, down. ladies and gentlemen. He did it. Well done, Jon Snow. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not A Small Council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark M., Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Arch Maester June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson Hammer, Prince of Dragonscombe, Scarlet, the Other Rebel Woman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, War in the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of Bainfort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gem That Was Promised, Lord Jacob Sisset, too, the Head of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of, Ar- Lord of Sir Arthur Dan, Prince Rick and Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitors, Sir Frank B., Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, were in the East Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen, the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew, the Restless, the Priest of the Round God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Tits Gent, the Trogged Light Warrior, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand, Herald of Sharon, Bastard Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives, Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and General Thems, and the Non-Cast, Non-Binary, Non-Army. Oliver, the way for Dwell, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H Town, Veneris of, H- of House Colgari, and the first name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mr. Svart, the Oort, Queen of Pencils, the Eraser, in the first draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee, the Great Game of Thrones, Portraits of the Realm, Lady Realis of the Seven Kingdoms, Splinter Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christopher Logus, Bloody Scorpion, the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh No, Bastard Pony under the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, Grave Rob Stark, the Cadaver King, and Horror of Heron Hall. Hold up the Holder of Cups, Sir Tim, the Knight Who is Guided by Voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dan, Prince Rager Targaryen, Sap- Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2, Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Squire Matt as Future Matt as the one who bring balance to the kingdoms, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warrants of the South, and patron of free-willing bisexuals, Lady Jamisa, she who suggests the coconuts migrate, Lord Christopher of Arendelle, official Ice Master delivered, the Valiant Pungent Reindeer King, Keeper of Feisty Pants, and Prince Consort to his ginger sweet love, Queen Anna, Lord Sir Septon Brothers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, Ward of the Kingswood, and Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Anonymous II, Lord Tyler, the Prince that Promises to Wait Patiently for the Winds of Winter, Lord D.B., Sister Winter, Hopeful Romantic and Unrepentant Shipper, Lord Monsef, the Severed Head of a Targaryen Prince, Brotting on the Council Walls, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, James of House Keen, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga, and Warren of the Western Reserve, Lord Timothy Marshall, Master of Roads and Bridges, Lord Joe R., and Lady Christina H. Thank you to all of our Not a Small Counselors. Thank you, Counselors, as always. And our spoiler wing, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duck Devils, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. 
So we're not going to have a, a question this week. We're just going to roll right in to our time with uh, Johnny Snow here. So tell us, Jeff, what was going on when last we checked in with Jon Snow? Well, when we last checked in with Jon Snow, he had been saved from execution by Ygritte, lying about them going to Bone Town. Let's explore Plato's cave in this synopsis of A Storm of Swords, John 3. The last night fell black and moonless, but for once the sky was clear. I am going up the hill to look for ghosts, John told the thens at the cave mouth, and they grunted and let him pass. So many stars, he thought, as he trudged up the slope through pines and firs and ash. Maester Lewin had taught him his stars as a boy in Winterfell. He had learned the names of the twelve houses of heaven and the rulers of each. He could find the seven wanderers sacred to the faith. He was old friends with the ice dragon, the shadow cat, the moon maid, and the sword of the morning. All those he shared with Ygritte, but not some of the others. We look up at the... We look up at the same stars and see such different things. The king's crown was the cradle to hear her tell it. The stallion was the horned lord. The red wanderer that Septon's preached was sacred to their smith, and up here it was called the thief. And when the thief was in the moon maid, that was a propitious time for a man to steal a woman, he insisted. Like the night you stole me, the thief was bright that night. There's something in the way that I, you know, George describes stars at nighttime, I think is kind of magical in the way he writes it, and I really, really like it. John claims he didn't intend to steal Ygritte. He didn't even know she was a girl at first. Ygritte retorts that if you didn't mean to kill someone and you kill him, does it really matter? That damn girl was so stubborn to John. Only Arya, his half-sister, was more stubborn. For that matter, is Arya still his sister? He felt like Theon back at Winterfell, not belonging there. And now he was a man of the Night's Watch and didn't have a family, but he lost those brothers too. John finds Ghost on top of the hill, but his, but his wolf loves heights and loves hills. He asks Ghost if he has names for the stars as well. In response, Ghost licks his face where the eagle rakes his face with his talons. The bird marked us both, he thought. Ghost, he said quietly, on the morrow, we go over. There's no steps here, no cage and crane, no way for me to get you to the other side. We have to part. Do you understand? Ghost's eyes look black and he nuzzles at John's neck. While the wildlings claim that John was a war, John didn't know how to do that working stuff. He dreamed he was in Ghost and saw Mance Raider's host back in a Clash of Kings, but that was only when he was dreaming. He could communicate with Ghost then, but now he only has words. And his words are kind of sad. You cannot come with me, John said, cupping the wolf's head in his hands and looking deep into those eyes. You have to go to Castle Black. D do you understand? Castle Black, can you find it? The way home, just follow the ice east and east into the sun and you'll find it. They will know you at Castle Black, and maybe your coming will warn them. He had thought of writing out a warning for ghosts to carry, but he had no ink, no parchment, not even a writing quill, and the risk of discovery was too great. I will meet you again at Castle Black, but you have to get there by yourself. We must eat. We must each hunt alone for a time. Alone. Ghost twists away from John and then bounds off, moving through brush under the hill. John hopes that Ghost is heading back to Castle Black, but he really doesn't know. His fear is that he's as bad a warg as a Night's Watch brother, or really even as a spy. John looks around and judges that they're somewhere north of the wall between the Shadow Tower and Castle Black. They had been moving for days south through woods and deep lakes and flint hills, hard riding but easier to get to the wall unseen. For wildling raiders, he thought, like us, like me. Beyond that wall lay the seven kingdoms and everything he had sworn to protect. He had said the words, had pledged his life and honor, and by rights he should be up there standing sentry. He should be raising a horn to his lips to rouse the night's watch to arms. He had no horn, though, 
It would not be hard to steal one from the wildlings he suspected, but what would that accomplish? Even, he blew, even if he blew it, there was no one here to hear. The wall was a hundred leagues long, and the watch sadly dwindled. All but three of the strongholds had been abandoned. There might not be a brother within 40 miles of here, but for John, if he was a brother still. John thinks he should have killed Mance Raider, because Corn would have done that, right? But the day and that time had passed. He was now riding with Stir, Magner of Then, and Jarl. John promises that he's only biding his time for when he would slip away and make for Castle Black, but the timing just never seemed to work out. Too many guards at night, and Jarl watched him suspiciously. Oh, and also Egret was nearby. Two hearts that beat as one. Mance Raider's mocking words rang bitter in his head. John had seldom felt so confused. I, I have no choice, he had told himself the first time when she slipped beneath the sleeping skins. If I refuse her, she will know me for a turned cloak. I am playing the part the half-hand told me to play. John knows that his body play acted well, as they immediately had sex right after that. It was John's first time, but it was not any grits. John keeps reminding himself that he's playing a part. He was still a man of the Night's Watch and Ned's son. He was just doing what needed to be done. The problem is that he likes playing this part maybe a bit too much. Egret went to sleep beside him, and though he vowed that it was only going to be a one-time thing, he had sex with her two more times the night, and then on the next day, too. John wonders what he's become. Is, is he as weak as his father when he had dishonored himself in his mother's bread? But then someone comes up the hill. Turns out it was only a then who informs John that Bagnar wants to see him. John really doesn't care what the Bagnar wants, but decides not to argue. The thens didn't speak much of the common tongue as is. So he heads down the mouth of a... So he heads down to the mouth of the cave, facing out to the north, meaning that the fires they lit wouldn't be seen by anyone manning the wall. It was all really well planned by Mance Raider. Inside the cave, John hears water below and, the, and then finds Jaro with the Magnar. Jaro and Magnar, Jaro and Stir, the Magnar, are both in command, and that did not please Stir at all. Jaro was Val's lover, and Val was sister to Dalo, who Mance had made queen. So Jaro got the position due to his proximity to the king, and that pissed Stir off. But it wasn't simply a Jason nepotism that got Jarl the job. He was a skilled raider and had gone over the wall a dozen times, even though he was only 20 years old. Stir immediately asked what John knows of the patrols on the wall. Well, um, they happen and they're on the wall. There are four of them and they ride mules as those beasts were more sure-footed than horses or other beasts. Stir asks if they always ride on top. Well, not always. One in four patrols go in the base of the wall to check for structural weaknesses, cracks, melting ice, tunnels, the wildlings made, etc. The Magnar nodded. Even in Far Thin, we know the tale of Arson Ice Axe and his tunnel. John knew the tale as well. Arson Ice Axe had been halfway through the wall when his tunnel was found by rangers from the night fort. They did not trouble to disturb him at his digging, only sealed the way behind with ice and stone and snow. Duller said, used to say that if you pressed your ear flat to the wall, you could still hear Arson chipping away with his axe. Stir asked how often the patrols go out. Oh, it varies. L.C. Corgau had one method, but L.C. Mormont favored the, same, favored the number of patrols. But L.C. Mormont varied the number of patrols, times of departures, and how long they'd be out there. That was an invention of Benjamin Stark, something to unsettle and off, offset the wildlings. Jarl asks if Stone Door or Greyguard are banned, and John realizes that this means they're between those two castles. Only three castles were manned when John left, he reports. Eastwatch, Castle Black, and the Shadow Tower. But who knows what's happened since John has been gone. Stir asks, how many Knights Stir asks how many Night's Watch brothers were in those castles. 500 at Castle Black, 200 at the Shadow Tower, perhaps 300 East Watch. John added 300 men to the count. If only it were that easy. Jarl was not fooled over. He's lying, he told Stir, or else including those they lost in the fist. Crow, the Magnar warned. Do not take me for Matt's radar. If you lie to me, I will have your tongue. I'm no crow, and I won't be called a liar. 
John flexed the fingers of his sword hand. The Magnar studies John and then says they'll know their numbers soon enough. He dismisses John and says he might ask for him back if he has more questions. So John heads off thinking that the wildlings would be easier to hate and betray if they were like Stir. His band of wildlings, the Thens, as again, were a hard people who lived in the far north. And they viewed Stir as a god and he commanded and he committed absolute obedience from them. Hence why Mance, cho hence why Mance chose him to lead the expedition over the wall. John walks past those thens, wondering what Ygritte got off to. Greg the goat tells, her, tells him that she went to the back of the cave. So John heads in that direction. Greg points, moving through the maze. A, so John heads in the direction that Greg points to, moving through a maze of columns and stalactite and stalactites. He tries to find his way around, and then he finds a dark hole under wet stone. Mm -hmm. He kneels and calls for Ygritte. Her voice answers back from the hole. So John crawls his way through the hole until he finds it open to a larger cavern. And there he sees Egret and light from a torch playing orange and green against the green water. John asks what she's doing here, and she sees, and she, and she says that she's he, she heard water and wanted to see how deep the cave went. To a dead end? You know nothing, John Snow. It went on and on. There are hundreds of these caves and these hills, and down deep they all connect. There's even a way under your wall. Gorn's way. Gorn, said John. Gorm was king beyond the wall. I said Ygritte. Together with his, with his brother Gendel, 3,000 years ago, they led the host of free folk through the caves, and the watch was none the wiser. When they come out, the wolves of Winterfell fell upon him. John knows this story. Gorn saved the king in the north, but his king's son took up the cause and killed Gorn. Ygritte states that the Night's Watch came too, and the Umbers as well. All three of them killed Gorn's brother Gendel. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Gendel did not die. He cut his way free through the crows and led his people back north with the wolves howling at their heels. Only Gendel did not know as the caves that Gorn had him took a wrong turn. She swept the torch back and forth so the shadows jumped and moved. Deeper he went and deeper and when he tried to turn back the ways that seemed familiar ended in stone rather than sky. So his torches began to fall one by one to finally there was naught but dark. Gendel's folk were never seen again. But on a still night, you can still hear their children's children's children sobbing under the hills, still looking for their way back up. Listen, do you hear them? John hears nothing but the rain. Wait, <laughs> wrong podcast. He hears the water and asks if the way was lost. Ygritte says some search for the way, but those people that go too deep find Gendel's children, and they're always hungry. They only eat flesh down in the dark. With that, John. With that, Ygritte bites John's neck. John nuzzles up against her hair and tells Ygritte that she sounds like old Nan. No way, Ygritte's not old. She's older than John. Yeah, and wiser too. With that, she disrobes to show him how old she is. John says they shouldn't, but Ygritte says they should. She tells John to show her his. I know I want you, John heard himself say, all his vows and all his honor forgotten. She stood before him naked as her name day, and he was as hard as the rock around them. He had been in her half a hundred times by now, but always beneath the furs with others all around them. He had never seen just how beautiful she was. Her legs were skinny but well-muscled, the hair at the juncture of her thighs a brighter red than that on her head. Does that make it even luckier? He pulled her close. I love the smell of you, John said. I love your red hair. I love your mouth and the way you kiss me. I love your smile. I love your teats. He kissed them one by one and then the other. I love your skinny legs and what's between them. He knelt to kiss her there, lightly on her mound at first, but he grit and moved her legs apart a little and he saw the pink inside. He kissed that as well and tasted her. She gave a little gasp. If you love me all so much, why are you still dressed? She whispered. You know nothing, Jon Snow. No, 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 no. Shy afterwards. I hope that was... I hope that was age appropriate. Probably wasn't. Shy after a secret asks if that's a thing lords do with their ladies down in the south. 
Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, George, we, we totally see what you're doing here. John doesn't think so. He just wanted to kiss her down there. She seems to like it. He agrees and asks again if anyone taught him. No, people don't really teach these things to other people. John's only been with the grit his entire life. She teases him about being a maid, and John says he was a member of the Night's Watch. Was. John asks who Degrit's first was, a boy who was also kissed by fire. He tried to come back and steal her, but Longspear Rick broke his arm, and the boy never tried again. John is relieved that Egrit's first wasn't Longspear because he kind of liked that dude. Egrit thinks that's gross as Longspear was from a village and they're probably related in some ways. Children born of incest are cursed by the gods. John then says, well, yeah, but what about Craster? Egrit punched him again. Craster's are more your kind than ours. His father was a crow who stole a woman out of White Tree Village, but after he won, he flew back to his wall. She went to Castle Black once to show the crow his son, but the brothers blew their horns and ran her off. Craster's blood is black, and he bears a heavy curse. She ran her fingers lightly across his stomach. I feared you'd do the same to me once. Fly back to the wall. You never knew what to do after you stole me. Again, John says he didn't steal Ygritte, and Ygritte stubbornly says that, yeah, dude, you totally stole me when you jumped from the mountain and killed Arel. Ygritte reminds John of the story of Bale the Barb and how he plucked the Rose of Winterfell. Ygritte thought John was plucking her, but he wasn't. He knows nothing, but he might be learning. John sees that the light from the torch is almost out and says they should get out of the cave. Ygritte teases him about being afraid of Gindel's children. It's only a little ways up and she's not done with John yet. She asks if John would perform the Lord's kiss on her again. Maybe she could try it back with him? The torch finally dies out, but John doesn't care. His guilt returns later. Weaker, John wonders why this is so wrong when it feels so right. The cavern was pitch black when they finished with only the dim light from the other passage. They try to get dressed, bump into each other, and they fall into the pool together. And then they start having sex again. Jon Snow, she told him when he'd spent his scene in her. Don't move now, sweet. I like the feel of you in there. I do. Let's not go back. Let's not go, let's not go back to Stutter and Jarl. Let's go back down inside and join up with Gindel's children. I don't ever want to leave this cave, Jon Snow. Not ever. Oh, my Scottish accent was okay there. But that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, John 3. I think it kind of sucked, but that's okay. I hope I didn't plush too much doing this synopsis of the chapter, sir, which is nice because you're the only one looking at me right now because this is a nice chapter. Nice. What did you think, sir? The last couple John chapters were huge in terms of scale and scope. And to be honest, part of me does miss that ambition, as well as characters like Mance and Tormund, who we won't see again until the book is almost over. But John's story has been scaled down for a reason, to capture his newfound intimacy with Egret. It's such a heartfelt chapter, written in shades of red and flashes of heat. It perfectly conveys the feeling of falling in love, the whole world shrinking down to just the two of them, even as both of them know that it can't last forever. Without George stopping the plot progression dead to focus on character like this, later events in John's chapters wouldn't be nearly as emotionally effective as they are. That's, that's such a great point, and I think... We talked about this in the recently uh, recorded episode we did on Battlestar Galactica, but like the darkness there, it better shows the light. And I think here we have to have that kind of sweetness to make the melancholy and sadness that much more effective later in John's A Storm of Swords arc and really even spilling into his A Dance with Dragons arc. Because there is a real melancholy coming back to this chapter as a rereader because we know the ultimate fate of these two doomed lovers. Much as George writes a lot of darkness to make the light feel that much brighter, he makes heartbreak that much more sadder by showing two people falling into doomed love with each other. Still, there is a beauty and love in, in the here and now. 
And I think what Ygritte says later plays so well with this chapter as it stands on its own and what it means for the future. You're mine, mine as I'm yours. And if we die, we die. All men must die, Jon Snow. But first, we'll live. One of the most beautiful moments in the story for sure. And that, that, that kind of bruised romanticism we talk about in George's writing really comes to the fore in these kind of uh, mid-John chapters. Not mid in terms of quality, just middle of the book, John chapters in Storm of Swords. <laughs> And John 3 feels like it has as much in common with the other POV chapters near it as it does with the previous John chapters. We've got the cave motif from the recent Bran and Davos chapters that we covered, same sense of tragic romance as in the Night of the Laughing Tree story, same fire versus shadow imagery as in the Davos chapter, and we've got the same questions of cultural transmission and translation that are at work in the Danny chapters we covered set in Astapor. Before John can say farewell to Ghost in this chapter, he has to get past the Then Guard outside the cave despite them barely speaking the same language. As John climbs the hill outside, he looks up at the stars and thinks about home. And home is Winterfell. It doesn't matter that John said his Night's Watch vows, and it doesn't matter that now he's wearing the cloak Mance gave him. Egret, he thinks, is as stubborn as Arya. But is Arya still his family? Still his pack? Should she be his reference point for things anymore? John was always an outsider at Winterfell. But does that mean he can break from it entirely? He compares himself to Theon, and being half in, half out at Winterfell only made Theon worse in terms of his need to possess the place and make it his own. Even detached from home twice over, Winterfell is still where Jon learned everything he knows. Eager keeps telling him he knows nothing. It might be easier if that were actually true. As at Castle Black, Jon just has so much to unlearn. He has to understand that his instinctive, unconscious reactions don't represent objective truth. They represent his perspective on the world. As he thinks, we look up at the same stars and see such different things. And that's one I quote a lot as we go through A Song of Ice and Fire, because it's, <laughs> it's such a beautifully written line, and it sums up so much in, in so few words. Constellations aren't real in the sense that they don't exist independent of us. They don't exist without a distinct perspective putting them together and saying, that's that picture. I mean, it's not like the stars were assembled by a god to form a distinct picture for your pleasure. It's a way of sorting information into a pattern relevant to your life. And so the constellations you see say more about you than about the stars. It's all in where you're standing, Egret told John. And I often think about how there's really no such thing as an objectively still point in the universe. It's just a combination of gravity and relativistic speeds that convince us we're standing still. Reading works the same way, as we talked about with Bran in the Night of the Laughing Tree story last week. Signs and signifiers that our brains assemble into a pattern, often without us consciously deciding to do so. John and Egret have some constellations in common. Others, they don't, and that allows you to map the differences in their cultural upbringing. Eager connects the positions of the stars to the night they met. It was destined. You stealing me, it was written in the stars. But John doesn't think he stole her at all, let alone it was written in the stars. <laughs> neither of them is wrong, just like neither of their constellations are wrong. They're different ways of interpreting the same event. And George knows the same is true of us, that we're all reading the same A Song of Ice and Fire, but we see such different things. We come to different conclusions because stories reveal you, not the other way around. I love that. I love that there's such a, you know, the, there's a cultural factor which goes into when we look up in the night sky and see such different things that that influences like the naming conventions, but also kind of the patterns that we develop too in, in terms of that. But also, I love your point too, that when we're reading A Song of Ice and Fire, really any story, we kind of have the death of the author perspective and that we are pulling 
things and ideas and, and meaning from the, the stories that maybe the author didn't intend, but they found they tend to be powerful to me or to you or whoever is, is reading the stories. And I love your point so much that I'm afraid of undercutting it by talking about astronomy <laughs> in, in a song of ice and fire. Go but for I it. love astronomy. I mean, I just, I just love it. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I've loved it since I was a kid. I mean, I, I guess I don't love astronomy as much as I love looking at the stars and being like, man, I can think some big ass thoughts right now looking at those. That stars. counts. That counts as astronomy. I think so. I did. I did take an astronomy PhD class in, in deep thoughts. Mm, I did take it actually. I did take an actual astronomy class and lab in in college because that was my science oh, yeah. that I was I was willing to do because I didn't want to do physics or Solid. or science that had any real meaning to to that could change the world for the better. Just wanted to, you know, look up at the stars, look up take at the pretty it, stars, and go to the planetarium. Smart move. I took neuroscience, which was a mistake because I thought it was oh, interesting, but it's also really hard. <laughs> I, I barely barely scraped by with a passing grade in that one. It was interesting, but probably a mistake. Probably yeah, should have using your brain and not being able to comprehend how your brain actually works. <laughs> My right? brain is so bad at itself. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's true. Oh well. So uh, just a few quick notes about us: the constellations, and astronomy, and a song of ice and fire. Uh, just because I think this is the most detailed astronomical chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, there are 10 named constellations in A Song of Ice and Fire, but there are likely 12 constellations in total, which correspond to the 12 houses of heaven that John thinks of here that Maester Lewin had taught him. And one of the cool but abandoned ideas that Elio and Linda had for the world of ice and fire was to do a star chart. Not a, a astro, astrological star chart, but like a star chart in terms of like what people are looking up and they see in the sky, as they said in a Reddit AMA from 2015. Fairly early on, one of the planned illustrations, and this is Elio talking, would have been a maester's star chart showing the constellations that exist in the setting, marking out the quote-unquote 12 houses of heaven and so on, as the maesters are quite interested in mapping the sky as part of their efforts to determine the change in seasons and such. It felt like a really neat, if geeky touch. Alas, it was something that never gelled and was dropped. I think it would have been uh, interesting if the star chart incorporated both the southern naming conventions of the stars, that is those south of the wall that John is, is familiar with, as well as the wildling ones that Egrit has been talking to John about. But since it never happened, we can only speculate. But probably a pretty interesting project for one of you awesome artists out there of A Song of Ice and Fire to get up there and develop like kind of your the star charts for how the wildlings see things and how the, the Night's Watch and those south of the wall do see things. But even so, John realizes that there might be a wider diversity in how the stars are named. Does the animal kingdom also have, like, they have star charts and constellations and different things like that? Does Ghost know about the stars and does he have names for them? Yeah, speaking of, of, of deep college thoughts, looking up at the stars, that's what John wonders next. What, is, what does Ghost <laughs> think? Like, it's one thing to be able to talk to Egret and have different constellations, but then share and maybe learn more about them. But you can't even do that with Ghost. You can't even get him to say what it is he sees when he's looking up at the stars. You just have to guess. Do the animals have their own names for them? Or or is imposing narrative patterns like that onto nature, is that purely a human concept? And that gets at the bond between John and his wolf. On some level, of course, as with all the Starks, John is Ghost, and Ghost is John. As John thinks, the eagle marked both of them. They're linked by common experience. And he did have that, that one memorable wolf dream where the eagle attacked. But John can't work into his wolf at will, the way Bran can't. John has to rely on language, spoken language, to communicate with his wolf, and that is inherently uncertain. He really has no clue when Ghost runs off whether Ghost understood his command to return to Castle Black like a good boy, Lassie, go off to Castle Black, <laughs> or if Ghost is just, you know, chasing prey like any animal would in the wild and he thinks he's going to get to hang out with John later. They have to part, because Ghost has no way of getting back over the wall. John is giving up the icon of his stark self in order to fully play his role as a wildling, and if he was a watchman, he could find a tunnel and walk back through with Ghost, but he's a wildling, they go up and over. 
Yet he is sending Ghost to Castle Black, ultimately affirming his Night's Watch self. He's not just saying, Ghost, run wild, do whatever you want, buddy. You're free Hmm. now. Go back into the woods. He's saying, you go back to Castle Black because you're the part of me that wants to go back to Castle Black now. John's many faces overlap, but not completely, just as he shares some constellations with Egret, but not all of them. And this in-between status is what makes it so painful. John feels broken into pieces. And the vivid imagery really captures that dynamic. The mist around Ghost as his red eyes drink up the moon. John imagining the white wolf following the sun to a black castle. Black, white, and red. Those are the major colors of this chapter. Black and white, I think, represent the, the opposite parts of the whole. Everything John is struggling to reconcile. And they're linked by red, which represents love, but also blood. The wall, meanwhile, is a shadow blocking out the stars, just like Storm's End was during the whole Shadow Baby stuff down in the south. Hmm. And so it prevents John from seeing the stars. He can't even see the world, let alone interpret it. And the wall represents the endpoint of these conflicting narratives. It's the point where you can't keep all the eggs juggled in the air anymore. You have to choose. It's the border between the world John knows and the world of the wildlings. There's that little moment when he thinks about it. It was designed to stop wildling raiders like us. And then he thinks, like me. John's no longer sure who he's working for, where his loyalty lies. And while that's compounded by his, his undercover duties, I think that's also kind of inherent to the Night's Watch, because they're sworn to defend places they can never see again. People they're forbidden to be in contact with. You're living your life for people that aren't part of your life anymore, and that's inherently a conflict. John can't even argue with the Fen summoning him to see Stir. He wants to. He doesn't want to go talk to Stir, but he's like, there's no point telling this guy, you know, fuck off, because he's not going to know what fuck off means. <laughs> So how do we communicate without common words, without common reference points? If we look up and see such different things, how do we talk to each other? Is it a dynamic in the rest of John's story? How do you bridge that gap between various cultures and languages and and find a shared basis of humanity to include people as awesome as Tormund Giant Spain and as awful as, you know, the Weeper is what John is struggling with in, in, in A Dance of Dragons is awesome as people like Dolores Ed are and as awful as people like Bowen Marsh are in, uh, at the wall. So, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a great thematic struggle for John for the rest of his arc in the published version of Song of Ice and Fire. And similarly, John's melancholy, which has always been present from the very beginning, but that is what is really infusing the mood of this chapter. It's felt strongest to me at the start of the chapter when John sends Ghost away. It's obviously prime territory for sadness here, as it's the boy parting with his beloved dog, kind of, you know, there's that kind of coming of age mode of storytelling that George indulges here, where it's a a tearful parting of of your beloved pet animal. But beyond the simple working factor of it, too, Ghost is a part of John the same way that pets become part part of the family. So it's sad that John has to cut free, cut Ghost free on a simple basic level of how humans interrelate with animals. It's one of the things that makes humans kind of awesome in some ways. I think it's that smart writing because that's that emotional dynamic primes our brains for what this act represents and what it means thematically. Call the coming of age, parting with your beloved pet story, call it a gateway drug towards deeper critical analysis of story and themes in general. Because John sending Ghost away without knowing whether he'd make it back to Castle Black, I think that represents John's own feeling about returning to the Night's Watch. John's first and second chapters in A Storm of Swords showed John taking larger steps towards becoming more wildling than Brother of the Night's Watch, and John 3 only furthers that trend. By chapter's end, John will still feel guilt about the steps that he's taking, but only a lesser sense of it. I love this line from the chapter because it speaks to where John is. You have to go to Castle Black. Do you understand? Castle Black. Can you find it? The way home. 
Can Jon Snow find the way home back to Castle Black? Can he find the way home? The longer Jon remains with the Wildlings, the farther away Castle Black seems. But even then, his stay with the Wildlings is under the microscope by those around him, with only one person in this chapter fully accepting Jon as one of their own. Yeah, that's really well said. That ache that John's experiencing where it's not even that he can't get home. It's that he's just not sure where home is anymore. He's not sure how to find the way there. It works It works along the same lines as uh, Arya and Sandor's final moments together towards the end of this book when he's, he asks her, do you remember where the heart is? And literally he's asking, do you remember where the heart is so you can mercy kill me? But he's also mm-hmm. asking more metaphorically, do you remember where your heart is? Remember where your, your soul is and your desire to go home? Do you Do you still have that or do you not? And that's the same question John's dealing with here. But among all that melancholy stuff about identity confusion and doomed romance, <laughs> this chapter also continues the espionage storyline from the previous John chapters. John's undercover mission keeps getting more dangerous. They're close to the wall now, having to stay hidden from sight. And instead of mostly friendly leaders like Mance or Tormund, John is left with Stir, the harsh Magnar of Thin. Stir even says that John shouldn't mistake him for Mance, implying that Stir thinks Mance is too forgiving of ex-crows like him and really should have gutted John on the fist of the first man. But Stir is mostly annoyed because he has to split command with Jarl. And this goes against Stir's top-down model of leadership, which really has more in common with southern lords than the popular image of the free folk. So there, so there are conflicts within a camp, as well as between camps, just as John has conflicts within his identities as well as among them. Tell me about watch patrols, Stir orders him. Not tell us to include Jarl, but <laughs> tell me. I'm the one in charge. It's just like how John was thinking, like me, like us, about the wildlings as a whole. There's this constant slippage, a constant question of identity linked to authority. We can't just be individuals talking to each other, loving each other on an individual basis, because the wall divides us. And stuck on those different sides, we started telling different stories. Although, ironically, the story of Arson Isaacs trying to get through that wall, that story has traveled farther than Arson Isaacs himself ever managed to. That's the great irony here. He got stuck under the wall, but his story spread, so everyone has heard it. And speaking of the wall, John has to play the information game here like any spy. How much do you give up? How much do you hold back? How do you stay alive? How do you avoid getting caught? And John is getting pretty good at this. He gives up detailed information about how the patrols are constructed and what they're looking for to show good faith, but that information isn't super useful. It's not going to constitute much of a logical betrayal of his brothers to say there are four of them up there and they have mules. John keeps things vague on how often the patrols go out, which would be more useful information, and he outright lies about how many men the Night's Watch has right now. Not in a way they can easily check in the moment, though. Jarl is smart enough to realize that John is including those they lost at the fist. In a way, that's John kind of presenting an idealized vision of the Night's Watch where the Great Ranging didn't happen and all those men are still home, still waiting to defend the wall instead of dead or worse. I'm no crow, John says. A lie. And then he says, I won't be called a liar. So there's this (laughs) constant negotiation of truth as well as identity. How can you play a role without becoming the mask? Stir's ultimate threat to John is, we're getting close enough to learn for ourselves whether you're telling the truth or not. Letting us know that John is running out of time and that he's being brought to a crisis decision point. I think your way of saying Jarl is better than my way of saying Jarl. I think Jarl sounds dumber. Your way is better. I was saying Jarl at first, and then we had a mic on for John 1, and he was saying Jarl. And I was like, yeah, that's right, with the Danish influence there. Oh, yeah, there you go. That probably is the proper way to say it. Damn. I guess I'll just go record the entire synopsis of this episode. Starting over. Starting over. over. All right, go go back to the beginning. No, I'm kidding. I think um, part of the alienation with John and the Thens is how they're framed, because the Thens are other to John. They have their own language, and it's alien to, to Jon Snow. 
It's a play on the earlier line about looking up to the stars and seeing such different things. We use our unique languages to describe the same thing or to make different patterns in our own brain and patterns that those who have the same basic language structure can understand. But there's also an alienation between John and Stir, the Magnar, and how Stir plays into a hostile familiarity for John. Stir's suspicions remind John of how he was treated by those south of the ball. And John, as everyone knows, is a bastard. Bastards are considered untrustworthy and treacherous by nature south of the wall, and Stir embodies that with his suspicions of where John's loyalties truly lie. And another issue is that in this case, yeah, John is rather treacherous when it comes to these wildlings here. He is not actually trustworthy towards them and is still at some level working for the Night's Watch. But the problem for John is that it's not simply the Thens who are here with John. As he thinks, if all the wildlings were like Stir, it would be easier to betray them. John grew fond of certain, certain wildlings like Mance Raider or Tormund Giantsbane. And here in this chapter, John mentions yet another wildling he was growing fond of, Longspear Rick. And it's interesting to come back to this chapter with the Dance with Dragons in mind, as it always is for us, as the Thens become John's closest ally prior to Tormund's arrival at the Wall at the end of A Dance with Dragons. Sigorn may look like his dad, Stir, speak only a broken form of the common tongue, Yet John eventually trusts him with marrying Alice Karstark as part of his way of saving her life and saving her from her uncles. Ultimately, the diversity of the wildlings is a nice touch by George because he could have gone the noble savage route or that of all these wildlings or barbarians bent on savaging innocents south of the wall. George doesn't take that route, which is great. Instead, he shows the diversity of wildlings, the good, the bad, the gray. But then because George is romantic, he doesn't end this chapter with ambiguity and gray. Instead, it's a dim torchlight shining light on what unites humanity, love or sex, both. Both. And yeah, I do love how George lays that out with the wildlings. He sets up a clearly unjust system and structure in terms of how they're kept north of the wall and especially implies the immorality of that, given that the White Walkers are coming back, that they're just basically, you know, set up to be slaughtered in a pen up there. But then says, okay, then if you zoom in on the individual level, what makes that so awful is that they're just people like any other people. They're good. They're bad. They're, you know, they're selfless. They're selfish. And that's what makes it so absurd and criminal that they're cut off from everybody because there's no, you know, qualitative difference between Tormund and Great John Umber. Like the fact that there's a wall between them is ridiculous because you've gotten to know them as individuals. And John is getting to know Egret especially as well as an individual. And yeah, the main focus of this chapter, of course, what everyone remembers about it, is the developing sexual and romantic relationship between John and Egret, which has been coming for a while, so to speak. It's probably the best sexual and romantic material in the whole series. I think a lot of people agree with that. I think if you asked, if you haven't done a poll on the, nat- on the, on the question, but I think <laughs> most fans of the series would probably agree this is the best handled. So why is that? Why is this so emotionally resonant? It's the tenderness of it, the sense of discovery, the lack of shame, and also the overwhelming fragility. It's a fusion of personal and political concerns, showing how they can't be separated for long. John is still a spy, and Egret is still a soldier. And as John thinks, the false pretense puts her in constant danger of reprisals. Now he has to worry not only about getting away from the wildlings, but if once I do, what are they going to do to Egret? But... John and Egret are also just two people who found each other and fell in love. A whole other person to get wrapped up in as he tries to convey to Sam on the show that great little moment when he's trying to explain why he loves Egret. He's like, I'm not a bleating poet. And Sam goes, no, you're really not. But it's because it's it's very difficult to describe something that the delight of it is it's intangible and seems to go beyond words. They just delight in each other, in each other's bodies, and they delight in each other's delight. 
All there's all those little details of being hungry for one another, you know, the the flicking of a thumb across the nipple or the biting of a neck, just all those body parts responding. And there's this constant body versus brain divide for John in this chapter. He thinks of it as like my body is responding while my brain is remembering the vows and the weirwoods, the gods watching like they would at Winterfell. That's the, you know, strong sense of of uh, religious shame. The gods are watching me do this. John thinks to himself that the cave is as big as Winterfell's Great Hall. Again, that's his reference point. That's what everything is being compared to. He can't get away from the memory of home, the person he used to be. And that person can't stay with Egret because Egret is at war with that person. It's spiritual torment and the demands of the flesh, the worry that John has that I'm not just betraying myself, my family, I'm betraying the divine, I'm betraying the universe. All that's good in me, all my promises, because it feels really good to do so. And that opens up the question, what are we put on this earth to do? Are we put here to glory in the gods or each other? Now, in A Feast for Crows, Kojo Mo, one of the, the summer islanders that Sam is shipping out with, she tells Sam that those are one and the same thing. Glorying in each other is glorying in the gods. Well, that's not the case for John. For John, it feels like he's cutting off everything else in his life except Egret. None of it matters but her. And that's our great glory and our great tragedy right there. John still thinks of himself as playing a part with her, but part of him wonders... Or was it before that I was playing a part, and now I'm really who I am? What does it mean to play a role or to genuinely be something? And if I don't know, is it right to make her trust me like she clearly does? All that build-up, all that self-torment, and then I love the great the joke, the release of this, of John going, we had to do it once, it had to be, I had to prove myself, we'll never do it again, and then George says, and they fucked through the rest of the night. Like, that's how, that's how easily it is to shatter that little self-conception John had. That's how weak his vows seem relative to love. He thinks of it as dangerously sweet, not just the sex, but the very specific detail of her her head on his chest afterwards, which is very, very real. Like, you know, I know that feeling, that kind of soft, sweet, drowsy feeling after sex when you're just close with another person and you just, you don't feel the need to do anything or go anywhere. And there's, there's, there's nothing but the present moment. And that, that tenderness, though, can turn violent so easily. Like, like John calls it dangerously sweet. Reminds me of what Cersei says about love. It's a poison, a sweet poison. That this is, this is always on the edge of turning wrong. And there's that, that great bit when they're, they're fucking in the morning and everyone in the camp is making fun of them. And John thinks that this is like we're rutting dogs. This is like the state of nature. And part of him is, is repulsed by that, but part of him loves that. And part of him thinks this is how it should be. No shame. Everything in public, just like the, uh, the Kalasar, when, uh, when Danny has uh, sex with Drogo that ends up impregnating her. And uh, John, of course, his, his reference point for how far he's fallen, how much he's failed, his, his constant point of comparison is Ned. And there's the great irony of that when you read this knowing R plus L equals J, that no, actually, Ned never broke his marriage vows to Catalan. That's a promise he 100% kept. But what John is describing, the sense of I'm betraying who I was, I'm falling deeper into this person, that might have been how his blood father, how Rhaegar, actually did feel about Lyanna. Hmm. And, and the fire imagery throughout this chapter kind of keeps that in the background, keeps that the, the, the Targaryen sigil, the symbol of fire in the back of your mind. And speaking of the imagery, one of the, uh, the uh, fun things about this chapter in Reread is seeing just how much sexual imagery there is scattered over the course of this chapter. Like when John is describing Mance's strategy, he says Mance had planned his thrust well. 
And then there's the great bit <laughs> when John is trying to find Egret at the back of the cave and he keeps like making wrong turns and being confused and coming up against obstacles. <laughs> and that's like, that's, that's every person who's first tried to find their way around a vagina for the first time when they're not familiar with it. That's John just making constant wrong turns like he's spelunking and only gradually finds the little hole where it's wet where he's supposed to go. <laughs> and there, of course, he finds Egret in this little cave inside the cave. This beautiful little pocket world cut off from all the concerns that would drive them apart. An oasis like Tyrion and Tysha's cottage by the sea that he thinks about. And here we really focus on fire and water. This is such an elemental place. It's, George describes all these colors blurring together. It's a place where we can be broken down and remade as two hearts beating as one. This is where we can be not only ourselves, but we, we can be the same person together. But... They have stories to tell each other about past conflict, about the war that Gendel and Gore and the Wildling Kings fought on the north. And that past conflict drives them into present day disagreement because they disagree about that story, about what actually happened at the end of it, because they were told different versions of it. It's a star they look at and see different things, just like Bran heard the Night of the Laughing Tree story, but really does not understand what it was actually about. There's that great bit when Egret is nuzzling at John's neck, kissing him, and then she thinks, talks about Gendel and going, ah, they have to survive on flesh. And she starts <laughs> nibbling him. Again, it's that tenderness that can turn violent, that a kiss could turn into cannibalism at, at, at the, at the, on a dime in a moment. But everything here is stripped away for the two of them so they can really look at each other. George lingers at, at length on this of, because, you know, John and Egret have been kind of fucking in very close quarters at night under the furs. They haven't really looked at each other's bodies. And that's that's a crucial part of a relationship like this. It's that vulnerability and that intimacy. And that's really frightening because you don't have any walls to hide behind anymore. But it's also exciting because what if you're accepted? That's the best feeling in the world. Yeah, that's so well said. I mean, that is, that's a feeling of acceptance that, that John experiences is, is real, even if he himself thinks that he's not being real to be great and believes mm -hmm. that he has a, a mission greater than, than, than love. Yeah. So even when John is naked in front of Egret, he's kind of compartmentalizes himself in terms of separating his words and actions with who he is and what his mission is. He thinks, he says and thinks, I know I want you. He heard himself say all his vows and all his honor forgotten. He heard himself say. John's attempting to compartmentalize his competing desires and priorities. John knows what he's doing is wrong. He is betraying his vows. So he almost kind of, I know this is kind of a weird way of putting it, but he almost kind of goes away inside that line that Jamie says mm -hmm. later about uh, what, yeah. what Thomas should do. Letting his body and tongue play a part while he keeps his vows intact in his mind. George then reuse, reuses how John is compartmentalizing by disembodying his actions and words again versus what his real mission is. I was a man of the night's watch. Was, he heard himself say. What, what was he now? He did not want to look at that. The easy route would be that John is playing the role of the honeypot in an espionage story. Mm -hmm. But I think that just kind of like scrapes away the emotional core, which makes this kind of a powerful melancholy moment. Because John isn't a sociopath. He feels things about Egret. He thinks that he loves her, and he probably does. And he also feels things about whether he's betraying his Night's, Night's Watch vows, too. So the harder route that George takes for John, or rather puts John on, is to be in serious conflict with himself. He's just 16 years old, and he's in love for the first time. And yet he is also infused with the principles of duty that comes from both his stark side from what Ned taught him, as well as the vows that he took in Winterfell, in, rather, rather in Castle Black. In this, John feels like he's acting like his purported dad Ned, like you were saying, and being a man of solemn duty and being true to Catelyn. 
Yet, as you were also saying, John constantly reminds himself that about Ned, that he did father a bastard. But as Ned didn't truly forsake his vows to Catelyn, John tries to convince himself that he's not truly forsaking his vows to the Night's Watch. Unfortunately, or fortunately for John, at least in the moment, his ability to separate his actions from his true purpose comes into more and more conflict as he becomes more and more intimate with the grit. And this, of course, is we get to the most famous part of the chapter where John single-handedly invents Cunnilingus. Well done, well done. Again, <laughs> applause for John Snow. But it's, it's an important moment because Egret is generally the one on top in the relationship, so to speak. She's older, she's more sexually experienced, she is the one who's uh, instigating the relationship, who told the lie to, to Mance Raider. But uh, for once here we get uh, that kind of, kind of the, the softer and more surprise side. For once it's Egret who's exploring new territory. And I think that that's the essence of love right there, that you forge into new territory together. And sometimes one of you teaches, teaches the other one this and the other one teaches them that. And sometimes you discover things together and that's the beauty of it. And it's a chapter all about trying to communicate, right? It's a chapter about language, as we were saying with Ghost. So naturally, they, uh, they please each other by using their tongues. It's perfect. It all, it all just ties together. And the question of the Lord's kiss, as they call it, also brings up class. That this is something, oh, the lords and ladies do in the South. This is not something that would be permitted for a peasant woman like me. And then, then they, uh, they, they start talking about Craster, and they start talking about incest, the division between the Wildlings and the Watch are different norms questions of, of whether John really stole Egret. Everything points to the cultural divide. But this is also just post-coital honesty you find between any two people when you suddenly feel this hunger to, to talk about past relationships, talk about what you were thinking when you were first flirting with each other, when there was plausible deniability in the relationship. And now you get to say, here's what I was really thinking when I was, you know, making eyebrows and winking at you. Now you can actually say that <laughs> stuff. And that's, there's a real relief and beauty to that too. Everything that could have prevented them from being together is just melting away. The torch burns out. Now they can no longer see each other or anything. It's like the long night. They're being plunged into eternal darkness. And what can you do in response to that? But fuck. John asks the gods why they did this to us. If this is wrong, why does it feel so right? I think it's a question many people have asked themselves in, in many different ways from many different angles. But, you know, if you think about it, it's really, it's not the gods who will force John and Egret apart because... They share the same gods. They're both the first men. They both pray to the old gods. That's not the problem. It's the war between the wildlings and the watch that ultimately makes this impossible. It's a dream they're sharing. And sooner or later, as Eager at least realizes, they're going to have to wake up. Oh, man. That's so melancholic. And I love it, just the way that you put it. But I think it's, it's what George is going for. And we know that that's ultimately where it's going to end up, that they do have to wake up. Because we as rereaders know the ultimate direction and end state of this relationship. But Egret stays with John for the for the rest of, of of his arc. I think this scene ultimately reminds me of being drunk, right? In the moment. It's amazing. It's fun. Mm -hmm. You're living your Absolutely. best life, a wild state without inhibitions. You were you were describing earlier about the uh, the Tyrion's cottage by the sea with Taisha. And and I love um how Tyrion like thinks about that as being drunk in her in Taisha, in, in her presence here. And it's hard not mm -hmm. to see that with Egret too. He feels in love for the first time, accepted for who he is, with no cares given to his bastardy, to the role he's supposed to occupy. I wonder if that's why John finds Egret so appealing. Yeah, sure, he's attracted to her physically, as he describes on page, but it's in how she just accepts him for who he is and who she thinks he is, rather. But there's always the morning after, the hangover, and Egret has somewhat fallen in love with a lie. John will eventually bridge the gap between Wildling and Southerner in A Dance with Dragons, and he'll eventually play the Wildlings true. 
But first he has to betray them here in a storm of swords. He may claim his heart is with Ygritte and that she is his, but his true heart lies in Winterfell at Castle Black to the people of the North. As he thought back in his second chapter in A Storm of Swords, John cannot let the wildlings breach the wall to threaten Winterfell in the north, the Barrowlands in the rills, White Harbor in the Stony Shore, even the Neck. For 8,000 years, the men of House Stark had lived and died to protect their people against such ravagers and reavers, and bastard-born or no, the same blood ran in his veins. Bran and Rickon are still in Winterfell besides, Maester Lewin, Sir Roderick, Old Nan, Farland the Kennelmaster, Micken and his forge engaged by his ovens. Everyone I ever knew everyone I ever loved. John is going to leave Ygritte and the passion they shared behind, sacrificing all for his true love, the North, Winterfell. But as I said before, John isn't a sociopath. He's not simply able to move on emotionally from Ygritte. It feels like the rest of John's arc is this kind of big-ass hangover from Ygritte. He's going to be broken up about Ygritte until the end of his arc in A Storm of Swords, and he's still thinking about Ygritte towards the end of A Dance with Dragons. That's the real melancholy at the chapter's end. John will save the North from the Wildlings, but at the expense of his heart. I think Maester Aemon said it best to John back in A Game of Thrones, John 8. What is honor compared to a woman's love? What is duty against the feel of a newborn son in your arms or the memory of a brother's smile? Wind and words, wind and words. We are only human and the gods have fashioned us for love. That is our great glory and our great tragedy. Mm, perfect quote for this because it's you can see the 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 sad painful fatal direction that john and egret's relationship is headed but how could they do elsewise what else what else are they living for what else are they trying to protect except this kind of moment between people and that that disconnect between your heart and your duty is the kind of thing that characters like jamie talk about and now as john comes into his own adulthood this is this is his version of it his version of that kind of breaking experience that the the Robert's Rebellion generation already went through and that Maester Aemon went through even well before that and now it's now it's John's turn as all his mentors kind of realize so moving into foreshadowing and groundwork a chunk of this chapter is devoted to logistics along the wall and that's setting up that the wildlings are going to go over the wall in John's very next chapter it is kind of an interesting head fake though in that the problem they encounter is not Night's Watch patrols it's the wall itself <laughs> which is John thinks is is you know, I don't know how literally John means it, but it's it's almost as if the wall is acting on its own to to throw some of the wildlings off. Yeah, what's what's that mountain from from Fellowship of the Ring that they feel like is trying to like eject them from the the Fellowship off of it? Is it right like, when they're uh, going over the Misty Mountains? Carathras, is, is, the Misty I think Mountains? is the uh, yeah, Car- Carathras, the Elvish name yeah. for it. Right, it, it feels and in the movie much, it's yeah. confirmed to be Saruman, but in the books it feels like it's the mountain itself. Yep. Mountain itself, like yeah, I think that's where George is drawing some inspiration from from the mm-hmm. uh, the wall rejecting the wildlings. But of course, many of the wildlings make it over the wall, and that becomes pivotal for how John is going to break with with the wildlings there, uh, because he ends up having to reject uh, them when they when they finally are bringing an innocent man before John to kill him, and then that's where he finally makes his his break from from the wildlings and uh, and flees back to Castle Black. Several arrows in his rump uh, <laughs> and his back from from that uh, from Ygritte, from all people. One more little bit of foreshadowing. We have Ghost being sent off here by John. And uh, George does allow you to kind of forget about Ghost because John is John thinks about him sometimes, but there's just a lot going on in John chapters. You know, he he's, uh, goes over the wall and he runs away from Egret. He sets up at Castle Black and you got to have multiple battles and Egret's dead and Donald Noy is dead and then Stannis shows up. It's very easy to forget about Ghost and that's what makes it, I think, such a gut punch when he comes loping out of the woods in John's final chapter in the book. And you get the... A nice catharsis for this for this uh, plot thread left dangling here. 
again, it's it's done so thematically well by George, and that when Ghost leaving John, it's it's meant to symbolize whether he can make it back to Castle Black as well as a, a number of other aspects that, that George is working towards. When he returns to Castle Black and and to John. It allows John to to make the decision that he's going to reject the offer of Winterfell and a lordship and to become and, and the Stark name from from Stannis Baratheon. It, I, I think you know one of the delights of doing this reread with you, sir, is that we, I do think that you know, ad- admittedly, I, I tend to look at you know Dance with Dragons as the most thematically a cogent book and the one that that really appeals to me in terms of its identity. But I think George sets does a lot of great work in A Storm of Swords of revealing John's identity struggles and things that are going to play out throughout the rest of throughout the rest of his story and I think the use of Ghost as that kind of vehicle to show John's thematic growth and development just works well here and him returning at the end in, in Castle Black it just is a great cap off to his entire story in A Storm of Swords. Yeah, perfectly said. That's what really makes his arc uh, structurally complete. And how uh, George snaps that together just uh, allows him to then move on a more kind of granular level than a dance with dragons because all those elements are, are so perfectly in place. So shifting into a theory and discussion for the episode, when uh, John brings up the theme of him and Egret looking at the same stars, seeing such different things, telling stories differently, the example of that we get in this chapter is the tale of Gendel and Gorin, the kings beyond the wall. So I want to ask you, thir- I want to ask you, sir, which which of the two do you think are right about that story? Is John right? Is Egret right? Or is there there's something else going on? That's an interesting question. I. <laughs> It feels like they're both right and that they both have perspectives. Mm-hmm. But then again, like I think about it as a historian and I'm not a real historian because I only have an undergrad in it. I'm not I'm not some Stephen Atwell is what I'm trying to say. I'm not a real historian here. But uh, but, you, you know, when you look at events from like 3000 years ago in our own human history, there's there's multiple debates about what truly happened and whether we can accept accounts from the time as being legitimate or whether we have to like balance other things in there. Archaeology is one thing, inscriptions that you'll find and and, and different ways you you look at uh, at history as, as it happened. And sometimes you have competing narratives that do kind of like bring up different angles about what, what happened historically. I think though that by and large, the story of Gendel and Gorn tunneling under the wall is a, a correct one. And the reason why I say this, I think it, it will have a narrative payoff in the story, namely in that I do believe, and I think we've, we've talked about this in the past, but the grand unified theory of connect, interconnected caves in, in Westeros, mm-hmm. we have, you know, Bloodraven's cave that, that Bran will go to at the end of A Dance with Dragons, and he will, will spend his time exploring the cave through through Hodor, uh, the, the cave system, and see how far it goes down, and he's not able, able to reach the end. And I do wonder that whether that will be the way that Bran will get out of when the, when the Whites and the others attack Blood Raven's cave, which is something I expect, expect will happen in the Winds of Winter, whether that will be the way that Bran will get out of the cave. And then I wonder if that cave is connected to Gendel and Gorn's cave, or you know, if Gendel and Gorn are legendary characters, whether there is some sort of cave system that was designed by arson Isaacs or someone else like that or these these various other characters that connects and goes under the wall and that's how Bran uh Bran and company emerge from from Blood Raven's cave and possibly they can emerge at Winterfell since that has a number of caverns and and crypts that could be a good place for them them to come out of you know Arianne's second chapter from the from the Winds of Winter her, her sample chapter also has her exploring a cave system down in the Stormlands and that's led you know, further kind of the, in my mind, the evidence of this kind of grand vast cave system that the, the children of the forest utilized in the past. And, and I do think that maybe the first men came to behind the children of the forest and either expanded the cave system or, you know, just utilized the cave system, the caves systems that were already there. So ultimately, I think it's legit because it has a narrative purpose in the main story. 
And I know that's not amazing, great evidence that Gendel and Gorn's story is necessarily legitimate in all of its ways, but I do think it does have a narrative payoff, which does lend its credence in my mind. Agreed. I think there's it's looking at how this could pay off later in terms of the caves. It ends up being a, a they're they're both half right sort of situation because I think you know there's the obvious legendary aspect of Egret's story that Gendel and Gorn's people are still down there in the caves and you can still hear them. And that part I think is we're not supposed to take literally. Like even when Egret's talking about that, she's like painting the the wall with her the shadows <laughs> leaping from her fire because it's shadow puppets and it's Plato's cave stuff again. She's she's setting up this story in a mythos for John more than she is telling him something that's literally true. But I think the caves themselves could absolutely uh, be literally interconnected to that extent. And I think we could absolutely see the payoff for that with with Brand's POV, which is something uh, a clever move to always do is to seed some element very explicitly in one character's story, but then have it pay off in another. So it's it's a so it's still a surprise for the audience. I think that could very well be the intention here. I, I, I agree. And and I think that's it's it's good that you can have both sides being correct or having a part of the part of the truth and that that working its 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 way out. I mean, even if Gendel and Gorn never existed, the best sure. way through the wall is under the wall or over the wall, because you're not really going to break through the wall that easily, as the Wildlings are going to discover during the Battle of Castle Black towards the end of uh, end of A Storm of Swords. So the e- so not the easiest way, but probably the way the least casually producing way to get through the wall is under it. So I think that this has been a method that's been tried in the past, and Gendel and Gorn may have been the first people to have attempted to do that in the past. But I think that's going to wrap us up for this analysis of A Storm of Swords. John 3, as always, thank you so much for listening and thank you to our patrons for supporting us. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. And we want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words. Septon Merrybald, the Shoeless Sage. Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Sir Way, of course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Sam Kay. Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Ghoul and De Morgan. Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping. Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies. Hodinus, a prostitute, Lady Silverwing, Kaboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frost Fangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, First Protector of Cripples, Bastards and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planet Toast Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Lady Ken of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, Sir Andrew of H-Town, Archmaster Hugh of the Tower, whose rod and ring are of tinfoil, Aaron Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crow's Eye, and Ned M. Thank you so much, as always, to our High Lords and Ladies for your support. Absolutely. Thank you also very much. It means the world to us, your support for us every single month. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, join us next week for a Storm of Swords Daenerys 3, in which Daenerys Targaryen strikes a hard bargain. Across Crash's Bonacla's face, that is, right? Hell yeah. 
this of course is the, the best and biggest Danny chapter in Storm of Swords, one of the most uh, important and frequently discussed chapters in the, in the whole series. And as, as we're going to say next episode, there's, there's so much time later to talk about all the, all the ripple effects and everything that changes because of what happens in this Danny chapter, but we're going to just try to focus on what a, a gloriously written set piece it is on its own. It's just it's such such an amazing chapter, and I'm gonna as, uh, I'm gonna have, we're gonna have fun talking about it. But I'm just excited just to reread it again because it really is that good. It's almost as good as the first time we read it, right? Almost as good mm-hmm. just to go back almost. to it again. And it really does George does a great job of preserving the surprise and twist at the, at the end of that this story. But it's well earned and well deserved, and I can't wait to do that with you, sir. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to our patrons for supporting us, and we'll see you next week for a Storm of Swords, Daenerys three.